Welcome to Lakeville. I'm producer Eric Sega. Support for Lakeville comes from two places. Sponsors we genuinely love and people just like you. If you'd like to help us keep the lights on in Lakeville, you can find our Patreon at patreon.com slash Podcast. Again, that's patreon.com slash Podcast. This episode is also brought to you by Brave, the new web browser by the inventor of JavaScript. When was the last time you seriously thought about your browser? Many of us downloaded Chrome without even thinking about it, but it's time to upgrade to something way faster, totally private, that actually pays you for browsing. That's why Brave is the new browser that everyone is switching to. Brave is three times faster than Chrome because it takes Chrome's engine and rips out all of Google's spyware while blocking ads and trackers right out of the box. YouTube ads too. So it works just like Chrome, except it's lighter and faster. Here's the cool part. If you choose to enable ads that you control, Brave actually pays you for any ad that you happen to see. You can then take your earnings and cash them out, tip them to your favorite websites and creators, or redeem rewards. It's like Air Miles, but just for browsing the web as you usually do. No other browser does this, and no other browser pays you. And no, Brave doesn't collect your data and sell it. It keeps everything local to your device. Brave is still a bit of an industry secret among lead tech users and privacy advocates, despite growing to over 22 million users in a very short period of time. You can be ahead of the curve, too. It's still early. Switching to Brave is super easy and quick. It lets you import your bookmarks, history, and replicate your entire workspace in less than 60 seconds. It's free, and all your Chrome extensions work in Brave, too. So listeners of the podcast, switch to Brave today. You can go to brave.com slash and switch now. By downloading and using Brave, you're also helping support the Likeville podcast. Brave is available for your laptop, iOS, and Android. It's time to upgrade to the next generation of browsers with Brave. You can find links to our sponsors at our website, www.likevillepodcast.com. Without further ado, here's our host, John Faithful Hamer, introducing today's episode. Welcome to the Likeville podcast. This is John Faithful Hamer. Today, I have the Great honor of talking to a writer who I have been reading and enjoying for years now, and I actually get to hear what her voice sounds like live, finally, and talk to her. Uh, Tracy Shabala, I hope I said that right, (laughs) even though I was coached before. Welcome, Tracy. Thank you for having me. I'm so to this. Yeah. So maybe you could just sort of introduce, uh, tell our listeners who you are and what sort of things you write about and what you're interested in? Sure, sure. So I'm a, I'm a writer, a freelance writer. Well, actually, now I'm a, an editor at a, a digital publication, but I've written a lot of personal essays um, um, about various topics. Um, the particular essay that uh, John, I know, has, has enjoyed had to do with sort of not really exploring my sexuality, but just coming into a, a certain consciousness about it in the time of casual hookups and alcohol. <laughs> and yeah. I've written a lot about recovery. I was sober for a very long time. Um, I drink every now and then now. I don't have a problem with alcohol anymore. So I've written a lot about dating relationships, alcohol, mental health, as far as personal essays go. And I've also written more journalistic pieces about food, culture, technology, and a lot about health and wellness. Um, and those are just, that's just more professionally. I have other things I'm interested in. 
um, astrology, crypto, tarot. I'll just leave it at that. There's my <laughs> interest. And so, yeah, so that's, that's what I do. Okay. Well, there's, there's so many different things that I wanted to talk to you about, but the first one that I definitely, uh, was the whole question of, um, of sort of ad- addiction. Cause you've written a lot about this, yeah. right. And about, uh, and also about sort of kind of turning away from the AA model, which as you and I uh, both know, I know, cause I've read, you've mentioned this in a lot of your stuff and it's, um, it's been largely debunked as pseudo- pseudoscience. A lot of like their claims and a lot of this stuff. So I'm wondering how did you, I don't know how, how, how what was your, your sort of your journey from deciding, okay, I have to give up all this stuff to then, coming to the conclusion that um, some sort of moderation was, was the wiser course for you? Because this is not something that a lot of people do. No, you know, it's really interesting we're talking about this because I have never gone public with it. Not that I have some huge public that's waiting for me to, t- to talk about it, but I've never said anything, not even on Facebook, for fear that it would jeopardize somebody else's sobriety. Um, what I'll say is that I, I left AA basically because Gabriel Glasner, uh, Glasner uh, wrote this piece in the Atlantic about the irrationality of Alcoholics Anonymous. At first, I was totally pissed off. And then I couldn't uh, get it out of my head. So I started doing some research. Um, I'll say right off the bat that I don't think AA is totally wrong. I think it helps some people. I really do. And I think it helped me, too. But um, after being out of the program for long enough, I just... Gosh, it was so weird what got me to that decision. Multiple things. Um, I think that I had somewhat of a spiritual awakening when I went to Thailand and started meditating with monks in the in the jungle. Like I felt yeah. like a real switch come over me, and and just something something kind of told me, you know, you're not broken. Not that you're broken if you're sober, but just like you don't have to go around feeling like your child. And, and I feel like that's what having, you know, being quote sober is, is, is kind of like, like, I don't, I can't control myself. I am powerless over this. Everybody else, you know, you guys are adults and I'm a child. And that didn't jive with where I was at psychologically or, or spiritually or psycho-spiritually and whatnot. And what actually drove me to drink, if you're going to say it, like how they say in AA, was re- totally bizarre. Like I was in Armenia, um, living there for nine months. My my mother's side is Armenian. And honestly, I had no, des- no desire to drink. But I was in multiple situations where it was incredibly offensive to the people who were hosting me to not drink their alcohol because it was, as they would say, but it's Armenian alcohol. And they, you know, it was homemade, it was homemade vodka. It was, so I remember first they, you know, I was at a breakfast and they're like, here, have some vodka. I was like, no, I can't do it. And they're like, no, come on, have some vodka. I was like, no, I can't. And it was just constant pressure. So I was kind of like, screw it. Like I'll have a teeny drop. Nothing happened when I had a teeny drop. There was no craving. I didn't want more of it. I was like, none of that stuff they told me would happen would happen. And then um, I went on this, this trip, you know, out into the, um, the outskirts of Yerevan, the capital, and I was in a village. And the, the tour that I had taken um, signed us up for this wine tasting. And, you know, I didn't realize. And so they just orchestrated it. And the people at the winery were so excited to have us. It was like me and this one guy from Russia, I think, or Israel, I think. 
uh, like they're they're not the same country, but um, <laughs> <laughs> it's like they're totally separate countries and cultures. But um, at any rate, they saw and and you know they were so excited for me to try the wine, and so I was like, I can't break these people's hearts. So I just took a sip of each one, and again, nothing happened. And I had already suspected I wasn't an alcoholic because I was never physically addicted. I never drank in the morning, and I abused it. I definitely had a problem with it. But I was not an alcoholic, as they say. So that was it. That's how, that's and then and then after that, I mean, I drink wine every now. And that's the only thing I want to drink is wine. I drink it. I don't know, once a month, once every twice a month, maybe. So. Yeah, there's a there's this wonderful like passage in um, Neil Stevenson's novel Cryptonomicon where he gets he's stuck on this uh, submarine with this guy, and uh, they're both kind of prisoners. And it's set during World War II. And one of the guys has become addicted to morphine. Mm. And he's really like kind of trying to find it. And he, he has this really hilarious conversation with this other prisoner of war that he's stuck in the room with. And he said, you know, I think words are really important. And he said, you know, in English, you refer to somebody who uh, like you as an addict. And so that word, it, it means that it has just completely defined your whole being. And he said, you know, in German, we refer to somebody like you as, I can't remember the German word, but it basically translates to uh, morphine seeking. And so it's, so they're basically like you are still an individual, a complicated soul with all sorts of qualities and virtues and vices. And, you know, you're this interesting full person and then you have this one adjective that um, that sort of describes you, like many other adjectives, you know, short, full-figured, tall, green-eyed, blue-eyed, whatever. And so morphine, morphine-seeking is just one, um, just one of a very long list of adjectives that describe you. And he said, I find that so much more humanizing than addict, mm-hmm. right? Which is like, it's supposed to be this thing that completely defines you so that you introduce yourself as hi my name is john faithful hamer and i'm a morphine addict right like that that i'm an addict and that's supposed to so yeah i mean i think that's um i I get i get your point that it's it doesn't have to be such an all-consuming but i'm wondering is it is it just something that that switched switched in you that you just didn't need that um, that sort of stricture anymore, or that that description. Where I mean, this is like quite an amazing story. <laughs> no, it's great to reflect on it. Actually, um, I definitely think there's something in me. You know, when I when I first got sober, which was 2009, finally, because I'd been struggling for two years, and I actually, well, I have thoughts on that whole thing, but um, like you know, I basically spent 10 years without alcohol. So then, so then after the first year, you know, I I got a boyfriend and um, he was older than me, but very young in spirit from Argentina. And I remember he was really into Eastern, you know, traditions and Buddhism. And he, and I would tell him about these meetings I would go to all the time where we would say, I'm an alcoholic. And he said, he always would say, that's really powerful language to continue to tell about, tell yourself and to say, you don't have power over alcohol. And at the time I was so furious with him. I'm like, 
it was so sacrilegious. And in America, like we worship AA, we worship the idea of people getting sober this way. Like this is the way, right? And so we had a different cultural lens and, and, um, and I just remember being like, you know, you're going to, you're going to threaten my sobriety. How dare you tell me that kind of thing, but it did plant a seed. And um, he would, and even one of my aunts who was very much supportive of my sobriety, like I would call, I called her. I remember this one time I was really upset about something and I was like, I'm scared. I'm going to drink. And she said, you know, it's not that big of a deal. If you do like, it's okay. You're putting so much pressure on yourself. Now I know that maybe for people who are physically dependent on alcohol, it really is a big liability. Like I certainly can respect that and hold space for that. But um, I think that those little things people had said had, especially Gustavo, like that really planted a seed so that when I left, um, and again, that article in the Atlantic by Gabrielle Glasner was very, very, um, it impactful for me because she basically said the same thing. She's like, abstinence is not for everybody. And I think she pointed to the fact that just having this defeatist fatalistic attitude and label on yourself is just like a yoke. I mean, it just totally bogs you down and then it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. So I think deprogramming, as some people will say from AA, that's basically what I had to do. Um, helped me kind of just unshack, like, like break those shackles and by the time I finally, like, did take a drink, um, let's see, how long had I been out of AA? I left in 2015. That was in 2019. So four years has gone, had gone by. Um, and I think that, that, again, that spiritual sort of, you know, the, the meditating, the yoga, like, I was, it's just like, it was a slow process, I guess, is, is what I can say. It slowly happened. Yeah, I, it, there's probably the best, the best books that I've ever read on uh, the reality of addiction. It was sort of like a, I guess, like a, a social history, uh, sociology of, um, of addiction was a, a couple of years ago. It was by a historian named, I think, Catherine Carstairs, I think it is. But anyway, she, she did this really, really in-depth um, study of heroin addiction in, like a longitudinal study of heroin addiction in Vancouver, British Columbia. And it was from uh, looking at it over like a 50 year period. And she tried as much as possible to figure out, you know, how much heroin was actually coming into Vancouver, um, who was, who was actually using it, how was it distributed. And then she wanted to see what are the long term consequences of this. And her findings are just absolutely mind blowing. She found that, and then she's since done things on alcohol and on cocaine and on a number of other things. She found that actually um, the vast majority of people who uh, used and, and even, you know, abused at times, like really abused uh, these substances, they, it was episodic. It was a particular point in their life <clears throat> Um, and they basically, they, you know, for a couple of years, they were maybe out of control with it. And then uh, the vast majority of them, they just walked away from it at a certain point, usually because they just ran out of money. <laughs> like, and they, without any therapy, without any kind of AA or NA or anything like that. And I, I, I imagine you've probably read uh, Johan Hari's Chasing the Scream which is all about uh, the war on drugs. And he just, he just came up with a, a new version of it 
where he included like a whole analysis of uh, the opioid crisis and stuff like that. But his, it's an absolutely amazing book, but he um, cites Catherine Carstairs and, and these other studies. And he says, uh, most of the time, um, what people are, uh, when we call somebody addicted or something like that, usually they have uh, a spiritual problem, a, a lack of community, a lack of love, a lack of support, a lack of meaningful work, a lack of meaningful connections, uh, that that's actually what the problem is. And if you give them, if, if those things are suddenly there, which clearly is, I think, what happened with you in Thailand and then with this wonderful guy from Argentina, that, uh, <laughs> that the, the, the problems just melt away. Yeah. Yeah. I, I will second that. I will second that. And I know I did read, um, gosh, what was the book, the title of the book by Lance Dotis, who Gabriel Glasner pointed to a psychiatrist who really, um, I can't remember the name of the book, but it basically um, zeroed in on the trauma addiction connection. Um, as well, you know, there's lots of things, everything you're talking about totally makes sense and fits in. But um, also, you know, getting to the root of, of that um, is really important. And psychedelics are, are showing to have promise or ketamine therapy or whatever, or, or traditional psychotherapy, which takes a while. But um, it's, it's all of those things that you're talking about. And they all are, in my opinion, fixable, rever reversible. So you don't have this life sentence, you know, like, yeah. This 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 self definition as you are. I, I love what you said about uh, that. That is so perfect. But you're basically defining yourself as a child, as yeah. a kind of second class citizen, right? That that you're not you're not uh, you don't get you don't get a seat at the adult table ever, right? Like because you can't be trusted even by yourself. I mean, which is uh, it's, it's a very you know. And this is, there's a book, it was years ago, um, it was Wendy Kaminer. The book was called, like, I'm Dysfunctional, You're Dysfunctional. A very funny critique of therapy culture. And she has, like, an entire chapter devoted to an in-depth critique of AA. But she says that, uh, she says, you know, it's kind of ridiculous that um, they sort of, they say that this is empowering, but it, she says, look, this entire philosophy is profoundly disempowering. Yeah. Like it's telling you that you don't, uh, you can't make any meaningful choices. You know, you're helpless. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we can expand. I feel like we can even expand to what determinism versus what is it? Lib libertarianism, but not in the political sense. Um, just on a philosophical note, talking about, you know, free will and this and that, but I, I, I think it's, it is very, very, very powerful. I remember when I first entered AA, I had a best friend here in LA. He was British, very, uh, you know, whatever about educated, you know, I sh that doesn't always mean very intelligent, but, you know, Oxford educated, smart, smart guy. And like, I told him I was in AA and he was totally for it. And then I read the first step and he's like, I don't like that. You're, you have to say you're powerless. I don't like that or agree with that at all. And I was like too messed up or, you know, the people that I was in hospitals and they all told me to go to AA. I mean, I never wanted to go. And, um, and I was kind of just really suggestible. So I was like, well, I don't know, you know, but um, multiple people have kind of pointed to that because it is absolutely disempowering. And 
I feel like we can even look at today's culture, like with young people. Um, and I'm, I'm all for, you know, self-care and, and, and this and that and work-life balance and all that. But something my boss and I talk about a lot um, with work is, is, you know, that it's important to recognize too the importance of building mental and emotional fortitude and that we can push ourselves. We can um, overcome things. And that's hugely important to believe in. My God, how are you going to be successful as a human being if you don't think you have power? (laughs) (laughs) Just crumble into a million pieces. Yeah, no, it's true. It's not. It's not a very. It's not an empowering uh, philosophy at all. And it's. uh, It's very. But you know, I I think it's definitely good to to recognize that people have different levels of kind of freedom and determinism, like what you were just saying before, like how. You know, some to some extent, our lives are determined, and so you know, being, for instance, you know, born, being born as like a straight white guy in a super rich country, it kind of kicks ass. I mean, it doesn't. I mean, it's been pretty good for me, but it doesn't guarantee that I'm going to have a good life. I can still have a huge amount of suffering, but in terms of like, it's a, you know, it's a, I, I get like quite a lot more in terms of probability, like more chances have a good life whereas like i've met people um, who did not get nearly as good of a hand and so they seem to have like less freedom uh, like way less freedom and choices um, than than i have or had right so i think it's definitely good like you know to think about um, the extent to which people's freedom is circumscribed depending upon a, a bunch of different factors but to just tell people from the outset that you're not free you know maybe other people are but you're not that just seems so um defeatist <laughs> Sad, you know? uh, yeah it is it is almost dangerous it's such a tricky thing isn't it because you know, you get somebody who's on heroin and there's this physiological process they have to go through and you don't want to blame them either. So it's like, where do you put that? Like, I, I, you know, a disease, is it a disease? That's obviously hotly debated. I mean, I've been diagnosed with two mental health issues. Um, I don't usually, well, no, bipolar, which is so treated, it's not even an issue. And, um, ADD, which, you know, a lot of people don't believe in, but it's certainly a thing. And that's as treated as it can be because those drugs are like, yeah, they can just be, they, you can build a tolerance really fast to those. But, you know, with those things, I, I recognize and understand the importance of psychotropic medication. It's been extraordinarily successful for me. I mean, I, I just feel so grateful this stuff helps me. Um, so, you know, as far as personal responsibility goes in that case, I think it's me getting treatment, you know, um, mm-hmm. So it's, it's, it really is tough it, to, it's like everything is all about it for me. Like the answer in life is just understanding nuance, understanding balance, like, you know, calming down every, you know, it's so easy for all of us to get judgmental myself included and emotional about things. And it's like, just take a pause here. Use your brain. <laughs> like if you're like, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. I, well, I think one of the really important things in life is is meaningful connections with other people and dial, dialogue with other people. And so I think one of the many things that has always bugged me about 
the AA model as well as the therapy model is that I think there's something a little bit, there's something sort of inherently unhealthy about any relationship, um, whether it's a relationship between a master and a slave or a relationship between um, where one person has all of the power and has, and another person is, uh, is powerless or a relationship that is totally like um, monological as opposed to dialogical. So a relationship between like, I don't know. Um, and I'm not, I'm not against like sex workers, whatever, you know, go make money, do your thing. I'm not against, but, but I do think for the, for the guy uh, or the woman, I guess sometimes but it's mostly a guy uh, who's paying for somebody for sex. That is such a, a one-sided relationship most of the time where it's just all about you and the other person's pleasure and desires and needs are just completely unimportant to you, right? So any kind of relation, human relationship that is that resembles like a totally one-sided situation always like sets off a little bit of alarm bells for me. And I guess one of the things that I, you know, because I've gone to a number of uh, to AA meetings, not for myself, but because I had friends who were in it and uh, they were here from out of town and stuff like that. And they, they, they were on like a strict regimen of like one meeting a day kind of thing. Gotcha. And so I, I had to like take them to uh, meetings that I just sat there quietly as a, an observer. And one thing that really bugged me about it was that, you know, somebody gets up and shares and it's completely just them talking in a monologue, like a preacher <laughs> at church mm. with no, nobody responds. Like nobody, there's no dialogue. You get no like meaningful feedback. It's like people just testifying, you know, speaking their truth, right? Like <laughs> that's, I mean, a lot of the problems that we have in our society are because we have a bunch of people who are just like speaking their truth without any interest in like whether it's true or not, or, you know, if it has any kind of like resonance with anybody else. It's just like, well, I'm just speaking my truth. <laughs> it was, was the crazy guy, the homeless guy in the corner. Like, you know, so it's, I don't know. I, I don't know if I'm being clear about this, but. No, I do. And I can see why that can be dangerous. Um, and it's such a tricky question. Again, you can relate this to what's happening right now in the present with, I was going to say the former president of the United States, the soon to be former president of the United States. He's now off Twitter. I mean, we can go into a whole thing about big tech and censorship and this and that, but it's like, how dangerous is it to have this guy spouting off whatever the hell he wants without any accountability? Sure, you have the comments, but you've got all the followers just pressing like and retweeting stuff that isn't even true, disinformation. You know, it's a it's a big problem. And I've certainly been at, at AA meetings where they're spouting all sorts of shit that's nuts. Like, sorry, um, psychotropic meds are you know, are wrong and this and that. And you're, and, and, you know, I understand those can be problematic too. You know um, I do anything can be problematic, but just these kind of reductive point blank statements and you've got a bunch of people, maybe they're new, maybe they're, you know, not used to, I don't want to sound, you know, disparaging toward people in AA, like they can't think critically, but you know, that is a skill that, um, you know, we all have to cultivate and be mindful about. And if you're certainly, if you're kind of, you know, in your darkest hour and you've hit bottom, you're, you, you don't have a lot of defenses up against that. So you can believe anything. Um, and I agree because I've been in meetings where like the speakers will say, 
really questionable things, very dogmatic things. And they say it was such conviction that people, you know, just like Trump supporters, like listening to everything he says, like he's a God and, and it's dangerous. It's, it's very dangerous. I, gosh, we live in such an interesting time. I, 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 <laughs> I really do. <laughs> I mean, but, but no, the, the, the Twitter thing is a, it's a perfect example of that because, um, yeah, there's a friend of mine, Stephen March, who's he's been on the podcast. And he's like you, he's a he's a writer. And um he has this he has this really interesting thesis. He's written a couple of articles in The Atlantic and uh, about this, but it, it, it he says that you know, when the we very conveniently forget in the West, especially in this sort of very Protestant, uh predominantly Protestant parts of the West. We forget that when the printing press was invented and became widespread so that suddenly you had literacy rates all over um, primarily Europe, but not only Europe, uh, literacy rates went way, way up. And suddenly there were just like books, you know, like crazy and they were popular and available. We usually in our uh, self-congratulatory Western narrative, we... Uh, see this as like, oh, this was so liberating, and this is totally connected to the scientific revolution and to the rise of democracy and of human rights and of all these like other fucking awesome things. And he says, but actually, you know, if you look back on that history more carefully, you'll see that uh, along with literacy and books spreading tons of really good ideas, they also spread lots of really bad ideas. So the biggest period of witch burnings that we know of happened in the hundred years after the printing press mm. came out, because all these books were spreading basically conspiracy theories about witches, about Jews, about all these different things like spread too. And they actually spread like really, really rapidly. And so it took a long time for um, for basically the culture to catch up with the technology. So like all these societies had to sort of put in place um, kind of stop gaps and protections to uh, make people responsible for spreading bad ideas, to have various kinds of gatekeepers that prevent totally batshit crazy stuff from, from going out. And he said, you know, th- basically the internet is the same shit. Like the social media, it's the same thing. It's like, it's a new technology. The people who come out with it say, oh, this is going like, to totally save the world. It's going to be liberating. You know, everything's... And in some ways, um, it has been. It has spread like a bunch of good, liberating, enlightening ideas, just like the printing press did. But it's also spread like some really freaking crazy shit. So the number of people, if you look at like... Um, opinion polls like all over all over the world the number of people who believe that the world is flat uh, that the moon landing was faked all these crazy conspiracy theories if you look at the number of people who believed them uh you know when we were sort of in our 20s versus now it's unbelievable it's gone up it's like it's gone way up the number of people who are like anti-vax has gone up like so much since 2000. It's crazy. That's, yeah, that doesn't surprise me. I I think I've been speaking to a lot of people about that. Like I was really happy that, you know, I mean, 
how liberal I am. I don't know. I could go into that whole thing. It's complex. But regardless, I'm a Democrat. I was pleased about the Senate, pleased about Biden. But I'm I'm not it's, it's not that I'm not hopeful, but we're going to have a reckoning. We need to have a reckoning with this disinformation. You're absolutely right. The Internet has explo- you know, totally um, created this opportunity with where anybody can have a platform, which on one hand is great. And on the other hand is a total liability as far as I'm concerned. And we're just like in the dark ages, you know, evolving in evolving in this area and, you know, how big tech is going to play a role in what information gets heard and doesn't get heard. I mean, I just see it for some reason, I see it getting kind of ugly before it gets better. You know, like, can we get to a point, like, is that, um, FCC going to start regulating what websites can go up and can't go up. Well, that's going to pose a problem for, for everybody, probably the libertarians, the conservatives, the liberals, but at the same time, disinformation can be so dangerous. And it's so funny because I have a a good friend of mine is like a ride or die libertarian. And I, and, you know, I mentioned that I'm interested in cryptocurrency and, you know, when you think about these cypherpunks who created Bitcoin and they created the, you know, dark web, as they call it, but Tor, that was all about, you know, evading government control and, and being spied on by the government and these central powers, right? Liberating yourself from central powers. And I think maybe I'm misspeaking, but I think part of the libertarian kind of ethos is if you got to burn shit up in the process, you burn shit up in the process, like the free markets, you know, um, and then eventually they'll sort of equalize and self-correct and it'll become this healthy thing. Um, so that could happen with the Internet. I just don't know what it's going to look like. You know, I mean, maybe that's negative. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I've seen I, I've seen a number of, uh, of plausible scenarios that, that fit what you're saying, where it's basically going to get much worse before it gets better, or maybe it's just going to, you know, to take the most extreme example is, uh, you know, yet another novel by Neil Stevenson. I love that guy. Uh, his most recent novel, Fall, um, he paints this sort of world set in the what used to be the United States a couple decades from now, and it's this uh, basically all the kind of the Trumpy people in red states have become uh, what's called Ameristan. And they like, they're, they have like a third world life expectancy. They have no teeth. They're, they, they're totally illiterate. They're like down to like a very decivilized like state. And then meanwhile, like the coastal cities have become these gleaming ultra modern <laughs> flying cars kind of thing. Like, Again, and they're just like right next to each other. There's, you know, this all the the middle of the country is uh, Ameristan, and they're just like, yeah, it's, it's it's a very dark, dark vision, right? So I I, I can sort of see some of them, uh, those dark possibilities as being, you know, something that you know I could happen, but but I have a, you know I have a, a a more optimistic possibility to float by you. So if whenever they've been trying. Um, in the United States, especially, uh, but not just in the United States, whenever they've been trying to uh, regulate um, the social media companies more heavily, like with government regulation, generally speaking, in most countries, there's been this uh, like you know, democ- liberal democracies. So like the UK, uh, the States, Canada, um, usually there's been this split where the kind of somewhat left of center party 
So that would be the Labour Party in the UK, uh, the Liberal Party in Canada, the Democrats in the United States, and then this kind of the centre-right party, uh, the Conservatives in the UK, Conservatives in Canada, uh, and the Republicans in the States. Uh, generally speaking, the people, the centre-right party is the one that um, pushes against regulation because they're like, ah, we don't like too much government regulation and we don't trust the, you know, all that stuff. I think one of the possible really good things that could come out of this crazy uh, capital insurrection, which is just fucking mind-blowing. Like, I never thought I would see something like this in my lifetime. But because they've been kicking, you know, they kicked off Trump, they've been kicking off all of these right-wing wackos and stuff like that. I think what's going to happen is... There's going to be a backlash against the social media companies from the right. And that that is actually going to tip the balance. And so now there's going to be a critical uh, mass of public support for federal regulation of the social, social media, which is a fucking win-win for everybody. Like this is like, so I see this as like a really good thing that is going to come out of this. So by removing those people from social media land, first of all, you vastly uh, increase the quality of discourse in social media land. Right? You're getting rid of a lot of really toxic you know, people, right? Um, so that, that's, that's a win. And then the backlash, because you did that, is also a win. <laughs> because now they push for... Do you understand what I'm saying? Like, Totally. I see that as like a like a, a potentially good thing that could come out of this. No, that's a really great point. I, I mean, I've thought about that. I, you know, I work with journalists. I mean, I I never call myself a journalist. I call myself like a quasi journalist. But look, I've I've written articles that require journalist journalism. You know, and that means you you fact check, you look at studies, you speak to experts, and you go for the truth, not for what you want to say, right, or what you want to conclude. And um, facts and inf- you know, it's so important um, that. It's just like disinformation is just really, really dangerous. And, and of course, inciting violence and, you know, those kinds of things as well are very dangerous. But um, I think like when we look at this, I'm sorry, I consider it a myth that there's election fraud simply because the judges, you know, there wasn't enough evidence to even hear this shit in, in court. It's like that's what's amping up these people that, that stormed the Capitol. And, and I was thinking about if I really thought an election was totally stolen, I'd probably storm the Capitol too. I mean, I wouldn't bring in a gun and, and tie, you know, any, any of that kind of stuff. But like, if you really think the democracy of, of the country is getting pulled out from under your feet, you're going to go a little crazy. And so I think that's, you know, an example of how dangerous disinformation can be. And you brought up like the witch, you know, the witch burnings and that too. So they're going to have to do that. Absolutely. So they're, yeah. they're yeah, I, it's pretty, it's pretty wild. It's pretty wild. I mean, I, you make a really good point and it's actually one that I've, I've heard a couple of times over the years. I most recently, I heard it in, um, my wife and I watched, um, Louis C.K.'s 2017, his stand up special. And he, he begins it right off with this like whole bit on abortion. And I'm like, uh, like pro-life activists and like, and all stuff. And he's, you know, he knows his audience, right? He knows pretty much anybody who's going to a comedy show like that is probably 
pro-choice, right? So, uh, but, but he says, he basically says to them, he says, like, imagine if you really believed that it was killing a baby. <laughs> would you just be like, would you just be like totally chill about it? And you'd be like, God, you guys are so dicks. You're so judgy. <laughs> He's like, no, you'd be pretty like fired up. But like, and it's, it's good. It's like a good kind of, I guess, uh, empathetic exercise for for people like <laughs> it's like to, if you actually i'm not saying this is right but if you actually believed that you know wouldn't you be kind of fired up about it like if you actually believed the election was stolen wouldn't you be yeah you wouldn't be like chill about it i mean <laughs> that's uh no that's that's a good point I, i'm wondering if you um have by any chance encountered uh, malcolm gladwell's new book talking to strangers or heard read, read some of the, the you, you have okay no uh, i because you so, what i i said no i haven't read it i'm very underread as far as books go because i like <laughs> only read the internet i'm familiar with who he is though and and where he stands on a lot of issues so tell me tell okay, me well if you if you uh, if you get the audiobook version of it it is like in my opinion it is absolutely the best fucking audiobook that it's the state of the art. Like the sound quality is insane. He has a beautiful voice. Like he has like one of those voices where he could read the phone book and you'd love it. Like he, he has music in it, but, but anyway, his, his most recent book has uh, an entire chapter devoted to, um, to alcohol and to all of the most, the most recent research into what alcohol does to the brain, how it, uh, how it affects you. And it, just it just absolutely blew my mind like it was one of those things where like you read something you're like this is so crazy that you go and like like look and see what all the footnotes are and what their sources are and then you go and read the journal articles that he's referring to because you're like i I can't believe this this is too weird but anyway what the, the short version of it is he says that alcohol is uh has been commonly for a very long time, we thought it was a depressant. And this was like part of everybody says, oh, alcohol's a depressant, alcohol's a depressant. Is it actually, it's, um, it's not. Mm. Um, alcohol is much more in terms of its uh, effect on the brain. It's much more uh, like uh, amphetamines or like, um, you know, basically like speed or like ADHD medication. So it doesn't surprise me at all that somebody who's been diagnosed with ADD um, really liked booze at, at all because one of the things uh, he says what what alcohol does is it, um, it it allows you to filter out background noise it sort of turns down the volume on like all the uh, surrounding world and it allows you to completely focus on whatever it is that you're focusing on. So if you had a really like rough week at work, uh, you got into a fight with your boyfriend, you're like, you know, you don't like your apartment, you know, whatever, you're, like things are not like, going so great. You go to like a game, you know, you go to like a football game or you go out like for, for drinks with your three wonderful sex in the city friends or something. <laughs> like if you, and you have a couple drinks Basically, what alcohol does is it just completely like turns down the volume on your rough week at work and on the fight. You know, it, all that other stuff 
is turned down and the volume on what is happening in that moment, like what you are focused on in that moment is turned up. So it, uh, it allows you to, to focus and filter out. And so if you are having a really great time with your, with your friends, you're really enjoying somebody's company or you're like totally psyched and going crazy for this, like, you know, game you're watching, then it'll increase your enjoyment of that experience. You know, it'll, it'll magnify, right? But if you're sitting there alone, super depressed and in a kind of a crazy hate spiral, where you just think I'm a fucking loser, I have no life, what the fuck am I doing with my life, everything's shitty, it will magnify that like a really big, or if you're in a, you know, in an argument with somebody, I'm sure you've had this experience, I know I have, like you get into an argument with like your partner when you're, when you're wasted and like it just descends into this crazy spiral argument that goes on till like fucking five in the morning. (laughs) It's, it basically, it's, it magnifies um, whatever's going on at the moment, right? It's really, really freaky. Like I'll send you, I'll send, I'll send you the um, uh, the two, the two basically best parts of the chapter on uh, on alcohol because I have them posted on the Lightful podcast uh, website. But it's the like you read this and it's just like. If you've had a problem with booze at some point in the past, or you've known people who had, you read this and you're just like, oh my God. Like this, this, this explains, you know, what I've seen or what I've experienced so much better than any AA stuff or any other kind of, uh, it's, it's just amazing. I mean, but, uh, yeah. And he, and he, you know, he essentially says that, um, it's extremely, it's extremely context specific you know, mm. what kind of an effect it's getting. so like when you were in armenia and you're having this like unbelievable like homemade booze that people have made with their hands with love with you know care for the ingredients and it's under their home and it's like in in cultures where um where alcohol is consumed as part of a communal ritual um it is can be incredibly bonding right because it allows you to it reduces your inhibitions a little bit and it allows you to like completely focus on these beautiful people that you're with rather than like constantly thinking about other shit that's going on, you know, outside of the house kind of thing. Right. Uh, but and, and the, the classic example he gives is um, if you look at um, Italian immigrants and Irish immigrants, in a number of different uh, American cities and Canadian cities. In terms of total amount of booze consumed per year, uh, they consumed exactly the same amount. And yet with the Irish, um, the Irish communities, alcohol uh, created a huge amount of social dysfunction. Uh, with the Italian communities, it created no social dysfunction. And the explanation is because the Irish guys were going out to the pub to drink with other guys and to get into trouble and get into fights and go, you know, end up at like the whorehouse or something like that. Whereas the Italians were drinking together with four generations of the family at the table. <laughs> it's really, really freaky. That's- I mean, does that sort of, does that resonate with you? 
You know, it, it, it does and it doesn't. Um, but there's like my, <laughs> there's so many like little thought trains I want to go down right now. Like the first thing I would say is that just really quick about the ADD meds, what's so interesting about them is they are central nervous system um, stimulants. And for somebody who has ADD, typically the weird thing that happens, like I take Vyvanse, is that you actually get calm when you take these. And if you give them to somebody who doesn't have ADD, they're going to get all hyped up. That's the theory. That's how they're supposed to work. It often doesn't go that way, honestly. Um, so, it, but look, if the guy does his research, the guy does his research. I mean, I, it for sure makes sense. This idea of like all the problems and all the background, background noise melting away 100%. I relate to that for sure. I can even like visually see it like getting blurry and just dropping almost like a watercolor painting. Um, and then as far as the context goes um, with, it's funny, it reminds me kind of like what people talk about when they, when they go on a trip and they take psychedelics, like context really is everything. People will tell you that. Um, I feel like with me, with alcohol, a lot of times things would start off really good. And then pardon the pun with Malcolm Gladwell, <laughs> you reach like a <laughs> point and then yeah. like me I would kind of go go to the dark side a little bit um but that might just be my particular brain chemistry but um I I can't wait to look at that because I always thought it was interesting they called it a depression when for me alcohol was a lot like speed I mean one of my good friends she's still in AA and she doesn't drink but we would talk about like alcohol would make us really energized and um and euphoric and so that that's you know it makes a lot of sense I guess um, yeah. And you know what? Environment makes a lot of sense to 100. Yeah. No, the, the, the context, I mean, especially I, I know like for psychedelics when I've done them, like it's the, yeah, the context is absolutely everything. Like I remember, um, I, I did, I did ecstasy a couple of times when I was, um, I don't know, like a teenager, maybe between the ages of, I'd say 15 and 25 i maybe i maybe did it like i don't know maybe 10 times because people people had it and they're like hey, i want to try this and whatever and i was partying it so i was like yeah whatever sure and i i never found it to be like anything special at all it basically from the only effect that i could perceive from it was that uh, it was like taking you know like a coffee or a speed or something. It would like just keep you up so you could dance more and stuff like that. But then, um, and so I think probably at the age of, I don't know, 21, maybe 22, I, I was like, oh, this is, I don't know why this people hype this so much. It's so boring. There's nothing special to it. And then when I was 25, I did it again uh, with, um, you know, with Prisca, who's now my, my wife, you know, 21 years later. Um, but and with a bunch of friends, we were at like this, like this rave, and and somebody told me, a uh, physicist friend of mine, she said, uh, "Oh no, 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 it's really context specific, like 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 a like mushrooms or acid or something like." And uh, and so I, I tried it again in a in a very safe like environment with like a bunch of friends that were just this wonderful, super supportive, amazing kind of group in a very nice place with great music and it was amazing and i was totally like it was a completely different experience right and so yeah i mean like all of those things and, and then if you go for like stronger hallucinogenics like you know mushrooms or acid or things like that i mean there you're talking about the difference between 
context can mean the difference between sort of a horrible four-hour nightmare, uh, waking nightmare, and four hours of like kissing the face of God. <laughs> you know, you totally, it's uh, yeah, it's totally, it's totally true. Yeah, and, and psychedelics is something I just haven't done because schizophrenia runs in my family, and I had like a psychotic break one time when I smoked too much weed, and so. I've stayed away from those, although I really, really wish I could try them just because I keep hearing about their therapeutic benefits. And um, I think it's it's great to just kind of crack open your mind like that. Um, it's possible it wouldn't be a problem. It's possible I'll try it later down the line. It's possible I won't. But re- regardless, yes, I've heard I have just so many friends who have taken them and take them for spiritual reasons or for therapeutic reasons. And yeah, I hear um, I hear all of that. I also hear that like it can kind of bring to the surface the subconscious mind um, and whatever is like kind of festering in there. And and I do think that sometimes would happen when I drink simply because um, I don't know if Malcolm talks about this in the book, but like the shutting down of the frontal lobe. And I, I I'd heard that that's something that happens when you drink. Maybe that research has been you know debunked. I don't know, but like when that sort of rational conscious human <laughs> human being brain goes dark, this mammalian rageful reptilian, um, what do they say? The paleolimbic, I don't, I don't know. The limbic system just gets charged up and that's all you've got, like this raging bobcat or something that's breaking loose. So I guess I'm saying all that to say, part of me wonders what would happen if I took those, like what would come to the surface, but but I think like one of my, my ex-boyfriends slash best friends um, tells me that it, it, it's not so much about that. It's about the, the context, really. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I'd say, well, two things. First of all, the, um, what, what alcohol does is it, um, it sort of calms down the, uh, the taboo boundaries, right? So your prefrontal cortex is responsible for impulse control and for kind of regulating your, your base drives for aggression, um, uh, sexuality, and various other things, right? So it, it kind of, it has that really powerful regulating function, right? And so uh, certain things, um, alcohol is one, uh, prolonged use of crystal masks is another one. Uh, cocaine as well, to some extent, they all kind of like kind of takes the prefrontal cortex offline a little bit. So you don't have as much regulation um, on your drives, but the point you're making is a way more powerful and way more interesting kind of spiritual point, uh, which is that you know, it might in some circumstances be interesting to see well, what, what happens? What, what, what comes up if I kind of like, you know, reduce the, um, that regulating function a little bit. And, and you know, it's funny because like what you say, I immediately thought of, um, there's, uh, the ancient Greek philosopher Plato, one of his, um, I don't know, it's, it's not as red as uh, the symposium or the Republic or some of the other, uh, Dialogues. There's this one dialogue he wrote, and people often think that it's um, it's the last dialogue that he wrote when he was an old man. But it's called uh, the Laws, and in the second book of the Laws, um, they uh, the Athenian stranger, who's basically 
most people think is a stand-in for Socrates. But the Athenian stranger is sort of talking to these other people, and he's talking about how the elite military units in a couple of Greek city-states have this kind of like you know, sort of the Navy SEALs, you know, <laughs> super elite, like, like <laughs> badass, like kick-ass, like, you know, tr- troops. They have this final test that they have to pass in order to, so first they have to learn how to do all these, like, weapons and be, like, super fucking badass and all this stuff, and they have to be in incredible shape. But then there's, like, a final test that they do, uh, which you have to pass if you want to get into these elite units. And it's a drinking party. And so basically the, the captain of the, of the, of the, sort of the unit, the, I guess the equivalent of like a drill sergeant or a you know, leader, they stay totally sober, right? And they have music. They have like musicians come in, play music, and they get everybody fucked up. Like they get everybody like really drunk and they watch and they watch to see what happens to you when you get drunk. Oh. So, um, if you get like really, really, you know, really kind of like belligerent and like, you know what I don't fucking like about you, Tracy? I say that I don't fucking like about you. It's your fucking eyelashes. I fucking hate your eyelashes. What the fuck is up with that? Like, if you get like all belligerent and you're just trying to start fighting with people, boom, they know, fuck you're out, right? If you get really, really, really kind of lecherous and you're like, kind of hitting on everybody in a really gross way and getting very sexually inappropriate with people. Boom, you're fucking out. If you get really kind of like, <laughs> really like, nobody loves me. If you get like, if you do any of those things, they, uh, you're out, right? And if you can like get really drunk, I mean, they didn't know this because they didn't have access to our science, but um, if, if you can sort of have your prefrontal cortex uh, the disinhibiting function severely compromised and still be a decent person and not turn into like fucking Brock Turner, you know, like not turn into like some rapey, like freak. Like if you can have your inhibitions pulled down a great deal and, you know, be a little silly and you're kind of laughing and being loud and maybe dancing on the tables a bit, being a little bit obnoxious and stuff like that but you're still basically like a decent person, <laughs> then you would be in. And their theory was, and this is like fucking 2,500 years ago, right? Like their theory, their theory was, is that in the heat of battle, you're going to be in so much shock. You're going to be maybe not, maybe not sleeping for you know, 48 hours straight, maybe not eating. You're going to be so pumped full of adrenaline. You're going to be seeing crazy shit happening in front of you. You're going to be really compromised. And we want to know that you can still be your sort of yourself, even when you're compromised. Like, and so you can maybe, you know, some people may be like, yeah, they can be like super, super cool. Um, you know, when everything's great, but you know, the type of person they like miss one night's sleep and they turn into like a total rage monster or they like, get a cold and they become like this incredibly like emotionally abusive boyfriend. <laughs> they, you know, they like, they, you know, they, if anything is like not exactly right, they just, this thing comes out. Right. So I, I think you're absolutely onto something that, um, you know, why is it that, and, and Malcolm Gladwell did not 
touch on that. Um, but I think that's actually you know a really interesting point. I mean, does that does that make sense to you? It makes complete sense. And I'm embarrassed to say that I'm kind of that person with the sleep, you know, um, I really, well, I don't, I mean, I know how to control, but I'm very sensitive to all sorts of stimuli, heat, cold, hunger, not sleeping, this, that, and the other. And some people call it highly sensitive person. I don't know what exactly it is, but, um, the drunk thing, um, I'm just saying that because when it comes to being drunk personally, like if I'm really, really drunk, um, all those weird things will come out. And, you know, I don't get drunk today. I mean, I don't even really get buzzed simply because I have this real respect for alcohol and what it can do. And because I've entered this part of my life where it's almost night and day from my past, where the idea of being out of control and doing anything that I wouldn't normally do, I'm absolutely not okay with it. It's really interesting. But gosh, that's so fascinating about um, what Plato was writing about. It makes complete sense. It's almost like putting somebody under a stress test. I mean, if they're going into combat, they have to be able to handle that and keep their wits about them, which I think, well, I was going to, now I was going to veer into police violence and I'll say, no, that's, there's a lot of racism there. So maybe I shouldn't even go into, you know, the stress and how people respond under that. I probably don't want to go there, go there, but um, it makes a lot of sense. And you know, just going back to that idea of mental fortitude, which I think about a lot, I often think about, you know, battle and training, you know, my father was in the Marines, and he's a very, very stable, mentally stable person. Um, And I just, I just, you know, I always wish I could be, you know, have as much mental fortitude um, as is possible. And I was just thinking, as you were talking about this, I'm like, I wonder if I should just get drunk and see what <laughs> comes apart, comes up because I'm saying that because I've changed uh, over the years, you know, there's belief systems that have changed. I think even your body can change in terms of the cell turnover and the, and the um, neural networks. Um, I'm just wondering, I guess all that to say is I wonder if that is like a deterministic thing, right. Or if somebody can, uh, throughout the course of their life develop um, to the point where they would have more like just stability, I guess, if that frontal lobe is compromised. Who knows? Who knows? Yeah. I don't know. I mean, but, but to go back to your earlier point about psychedelics, there's uh, Michael Pollan, Pollan's book, How to Change Your Mind, which is, he, he talks about you know, all sorts of therape- therapeutic uses of, of different kinds of psychedelics. And he actually has a, a whole a whole section in that book where he talks about AA and how originally um, the one of the steps of, I can't remember which one, but one of the original steps of AA was to do this very powerful hallucinogenic, which the guy who started AA, what's his name again? I'm blanking on his name. Bill Wilson. Yes. He, um, he did a very powerful hallucinogenic drug and that, and he initially said that that was central to recovery, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, and then it was taken out. But anyway, he he includes all of that in, in his book. This is the guy who wrote like uh, the Omnivore's Dilemma and um, the anyway. He's like he be, be very popular writer, uh, magazine articles, but then also has some books and stuff like that. But anyway, his his book uh, How to Change Your Mind is really freaky, but. But he in there, uh, one of the pieces of advice that he gives, which I've heard like repeated by so many people who know about this stuff, 
is that if you have had uh, sort of like mild psychosis from weed, like if you've kind of bad tripped on weed and you've had, you've had like some very kind of panicky, scary experiences with weed, you shouldn't do psychedelics. Like it's just like That's, you you shouldn't. It's like it's a re- it's a really really uh, highly highly likely that you're not going to have a good time. That is so. That is so great. So that's Michael Paul. Very familiar with him. I've read some of his books. So that's his, so that's in his book that he uh, stipulates that. Like he's, yeah, he says it's uh, that basically. And it, I mean, this is something I've just I've heard from so many people. Sam Harris. You know the making making sense podcast and stuff like that. He talks about how like he did um, psychedelics for years, mm-hmm. and uh, and then he had like a bad trip where he got like really paranoid and really kind of like ah. And after that, it was like um, every time he would try and do them again, he would immediately kind of continue with that bad horrible trip. <laughs> like he would go back to that that bad place like right away. Uh, but he he actually he did them again recently for the first time in like he said like uh, twenty years or twenty five years and he he did a whole short episode of his podcast where he describes but he did it in a super safe environment he was with his wife Annika in their L A home and they were like it was in a you know it was a super safe safe environment and. Uh, and he he put on um, I think he put on like coverings over his eyes so that he could just totally go into his own um, his own universe. And it is it is a completely completely wild wild description. Like he uh, it's it will blow your mind. I mean, it doesn't. Uh, here, I'll, I'll just I'll read you the, the best passage from it. He says. Uh, you are wading into a roiling ocean of meaning with the proverbial thimble. What you bring back in that symbol just can't begin to indicate the immensity of the experience or its beauty or its terror, depending. Even to oneself, as an aid to memory, language is next to useless. And the fact that there are landscapes of mind this vast lurking on the other side of a mushroom is simply preposterous. How could that make any sense? The scale of the thing is all wrong. It violates every intuition you have about what is to have a mind, what it is to have a mind and a body in a world. It's as though we lived in a universe where if you just reached into your right pocket with your left hand, rather than pull out your wallet, you'd pull out the Andromeda galaxy. The experience is altogether too much. It's like a reductio ad absurdum of one's desire for experience itself. It's as though the cosmos were saying, oh, experience is what you want? You want to see and feel and think? Okay, how's this? And then what follows is a vision so blinding in its beauty and intensity that it shatters your mind. It just unmakes you. Again, I have to admit the poverty of words here. We have a word for love, for instance. But what's the word for all the love you can possibly feel? and all the love that you recognize that you have failed to feel at every moment in your life up until this moment. What do we call the experience of having that ocean of feeling invade you and fill every empty space in your mind? 
There really are no words to describe this experience. <laughs> insane. That's really, really, really interesting to me. I, I got to say, I mean, it sounds like I'm patting myself on the back, but I've had lots of experiences that are very similar to that without being on drugs. Not to say that I can conjure such a thing as he's describing, but just being overwhelmed with this presence of light and love and goodness to the point where I just break down in tears and feel connected to everything. And that's, as I was talking about that experience in Thailand, I had that. And I, you know, I often wonder, are these experiences just evidence of how powerful the mind is, which is what I used to think, you know, five years ago, I thought it was all just materialistic. Like these are just synapses, blah, blah, blah. Or is it about a spiritual, you know, existence and a spiritual presence and this, you know, eternal, you know, or all encompassing love energy. I'd like to think it's the latter, you know? I think it, I think when you have those, I've had those experiences as well. Um, you know, without, without, you know, well, in many states, like without drugs, without, uh, I've had them sometimes uh, because I'm looking at something incredibly beautiful. I've had them sometimes when I was like on an elevator, <laughs> you know, not seeing anything. Um, I think when, when those experiences happen, those feelings of just bubbling up ecstatic joy, that's just like, um, I think what those moments tell us is that um, joy is our birthright, that that is like actually, that is there as a possibility, as a state of consciousness all the time. And we just have to somehow try and find our way to that place. You know, like if you see like a kid playing, you know, like wait. And they just like, you know, I remember one of the coolest things about like having kids was that I, with my, my, our older son, Tristan, who's 18 now. And uh, I remember just going out with him and like doing regular shit. Like uh, when he was, I don't know, maybe like two, uh, I was going out um, a week or two before Christmas to pick up our Christmas tree in, um, St. Louis Square, which is not far from our house. And there's a little old guy who sells Christmas trees there. And it started snowing, right? And the snow was falling down. And it was the first time Tristan had ever seen snow. And he just like, the look on his face, he was like, what the fuck? (laughs) There's like, there's white shit falling from the sky in this really like wonderful way. And it's blanketing everything and turning the entire field of view white and him just going like like Like, him just like kind of like tripping on the snow it made me sort of look at that and go like that is pretty fucking cool how did i ever get used to this shit like how did i ever like look at this and be like yeah whatever like like this is actually really really beautiful this is amazing and i was like you know i think this is probably what mystics have been trying to point us to you know forever like you know when jesus says if you want to enter the kingdom of god uh, you must become a child like he's basically saying like the kingdom of god is fucking around you all the time you're just so stupid and distracted you're not realizing it's there you know like it's it's i think those those experiences that you had those experiences of awe and joy are 
just, you know, for those moments, the doors of perception are being um, cleansed and you're actually just seeing how fucking cool all this shit is. And you're experiencing how awesome it is to be alive. Oh, wow. Yeah, that definitely, um, that definitely registers. It's, it's just so funny because one of our writers um, who I work with pitched us a, a piece about the importance of cultivating awe. I mean, now, you know, with wellness, it's like cultivate this, cultivate that, cultivate that. Can you cultivate it or does it just happen? I mean, we're talking about awe and wonder. But um, I do really connect with that. Um, that's why I love stargazing. I love to go out into the desert because, my God, if it's like a, a clear day and you're out in the desert, you can see the stars all around you in a total, like it's the dome. You're, you're enveloped in these stars. It's so magical. Um, and I know that that just transports me to a, an entirely different world and shifts my perspective and it's it's so important um i think i love that story about your son because if you really think about like you've never seen snow it's like what is this magical stuff coming yeah it's it's it is a kind of uh and anyway the the point that michael pollan makes in how to change your mind is that very often people who have uh, who've been chronically depressed or people who've had like very serious kind of, uh, they've been like really hardcore drinkers or they've had like a bad, like opioid addiction or heroin addiction. Very often, like one of the things that is really hard for those people is that they no longer experience joy. They no longer experience awe. So even if you, even if you get rid of like the shitty feelings, uh, even if you get rid of the depression with like, you know, uh, some good mix of uh, of drugs or something like that. If, if you basically get away, get rid of all the, the negative shit, what they're going to experience then is just profound kind of nihilistic on me. They're just going to be fucking bored as fuck. They're just going to be really kind of like everything is gray. It's like Groundhog Day. Like everything's fucking boring and the same. Like you know, in that that movie Drugstore Cowboy, when he's like talking about how much it sucks to be sober. And like, just like the, he says, it's not the pain or anything it was the withdrawal that, that kind of only lasts like a, you know, a week or two. What's, what's way more painful than the pain of the withdrawal and stuff like that. It's just how completely tedious and boring you find everything, right? It's like, uh, what's his name? The character in Fight Club where he's talking about like when you have insomnia everything is the same day and everything's so kind of like drab and everything. So anyway, what Michael Pollan says in, in uh, how to change your mind is that um, the reason why psychedelics are this incredible cure for people who've had chronic um, depression and, and alcoholism and things like that is that it, it basically kicks in your capacity for awe enjoy again so you you can like walk around and it's not really that you're high it's not like being high on coke or something like that it's just it makes you sort of like see the kingdom of heaven around you it makes you see everything like a two-year-old you just see things and and the dew is fresh on the world again the world has been created again you're not just sort of like uh seeing things in that really jaded you know, way that you see in in um, Ecclesiastes, where this sort of like 
partied out like rock star, which uh, you know, it sort of sounds like a lot of the writing that I read from you. Like when you first started writing a lot, you know, like back back in the day, uh, like this, like kind of like uh, you know, get him to the Greek, you know, kind of like. Like leaving Sarah Marshall, what's his name? That British comedian. The, uh, yes, exactly, exactly that guy. Like, huh. like this sort of this person. If you if you read in Ecclesiastes, Solomon, who's you know popular, yeah. They by convention we say that he wrote that, and but he says, "Oh, nothing is new under the sun." You know, he sounds like a total like kind of like nineties hipster. Like oh, everything's been everything's been done. It's also fucking boring and derivative. And like, and so anyway, what Michael Pollan says is that uh, what psychedelics do is they allow you to like actually re experience um, the magic of the world and to get to see things and get excited about them again. Not because you're high, not, not because you're delusional, just because you're like actually seeing what is there, if that makes sense. You know, it totally makes sense. I love that you brought up the 90s hipsters because <laughs> I, yeah, I came of age in the 90s and I was. So did I. So did I, yeah. Well, we're both about the same. I'm 46. You're like. 42. Okay, yeah. I mean, my gosh, I, you know, so many of the cultural influencers seem to be, you know, 25 and 30. So um, I love that because I just remember that, like, you're talking about ennui. It's like, you know, I don't know if it's because there was so much anorexia going around, at least with the. Like, people just didn't want to stand up straight. That was lame. And, like, I, I had a lot of passion and excitement. And I just remember being a dork because of it. You know, like, I'd go to some parties and I was just like, hey, who are you? And people would be like, yeah. <laughs> and I just remember that. But, you know, like, you're talking about awe. And I, and I think kind of, I'm, I'm by no means like an evangelist of Buddhism or mindfulness. I think to each his own or to each her own or whatever. But mindfulness, that practice, which talk about sounding boring, it does sound boring, um, but just kind of being in the present moment can help unleash those things. But I've found that like some people kind of naturally live in that state and other people don't. And, and it's funny because, you know, like you're obviously a very a philosophical person. There's just no two ways about it. A curious philosophical person. Not everybody is, you know, some people are very, you know, very much in the physical world. Like, like, let's get to business, da, 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 da. Things are in structures and there's, I have nothing against them, but I've noticed that, you know, certain people that are, gosh, I shouldn't judge and, and, and categorize people because <laughs> I'm kind of hinting that these people categorize, but like, maybe some people don't have the same capacity for awe. I have like a good friend who, who's a lot like me. Like we could go to a, a beach or, or go to the, the, you know, the mountains, like, like with the snow and just like kind of get lost staring at things. And um, it's, it's just such an interesting, important thing to have in our lives. But I totally hear you about the psychedelics, um, you know, engendering that experience and, you know, it's so funny you're talking about this because of COVID. Like everybody is feeling like they're in this Groundhog Day. Um, I've been thinking a lot about the state of flow because I don't seem to, I don't feel depressed. I don't, you know, I mean, that sounds, I, I don't like, I feel like I'm patting myself on the back, but I just, I, I find that there's so much to learn about online. Like you can read, you can learn. And that's like essentially going into that state of flow, which I can't pronounce his name. He's a, 
Hungarian uh, positive psychologist. Um, oh yeah, the uh, yeah the psychologist Chick sent me high. Okay, yeah, 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 exactly. that guy, yeah. Exactly. And so he kind of, his book, it's interesting, I think, talks about how that state of flow is like what everybody's kind of trying to get. A drug addict, for example, is chasing the state, Um, whether it means engaging in an artistic process, a learning process, or a spiritual state, you know, um, that's like the ideal state of sort of being. Um, And I don't know, like you can kind of, I feel like some people can kind of do it on their own, maybe in an internal or intellectual way. But um, however, that is different from awe, you know, being in flow while you're, you know, learning a piece of music or playing a piece of music is is different than that specific state of awe. Um, so interesting. Yeah, flow, flow is a, a completely uh, amazing experience. I mean, I think like so many things, can be explained by uh, if you if you understand like what the the incredible attractions of flow are, you know. But I mean, like video games, for instance, like people who get uh, really into playing a video game and they'll be so into it that they will, um, you know, video games basically got got super popular. Yeah, I, I played like Pac Man and Donkey in Space. And I played like a couple of them, but I was still. I just, I just missed that like just a little bit, like by just like a few years. And so I, I still actually played like sports outside and with my friends and playing tag and getting into trouble and stuff like that. Like, but I, I was very judgy about video games for years. Um, but you know, then when I actually like looked into the research on what happens to people and I, and I listened to lots of my students telling me like, what happens to them when they get really into like a video game. And it's, it's, it's totally, they're getting into a flow state. Like they get into this like state and, um, and they can be like playing that game for 10 hours and they don't even like, if you ask them, like, you know, you know, that that wonderful expression, like time flies when you're having fun, right? Yeah. Uh, It's not, it's not exactly an accurate expression. Like a truer expression would be, time stops when you're having fun like when you when you're really having fun when you're really enjoying what you're doing you the part of your brain that is responsible for paying attention to time uh basically is like doesn't get as much blood flow it doesn't get as much it just like kind of just is not very like a big part of your consciousness right where the exact opposite is true if you're horribly depressed or in pain or you've just broken your leg or your arm or you just had a horrible breakup or like then you're incredibly conscious of of time and it's it's oppressive you know right so but yeah no video games do that like uh exercising does it for some people uh, yeah no flow flows are really but but what you were experiencing um or encountering in thailand with this this meditation that is another state of consciousness which i think is super super important um maybe even more important than flow uh which is just being able to like clear your mind right Mm. like just like clear it because because flow is i I love flow I, i i get into it very easily and i love it um, but flow is essentially, um, how can I put it? If, okay, if you're, 
if you're like, if your life is really shitty and there's a lot of bad stuff that's going on in your life, if you can develop an obsession, right? And that can be an obsession with gambling, with politics, with a video game, with anything, at least the obsession, it fills up all of your consciousness so that you don't have to think about anything else, right? And there's ways in which that can be like really dysfunctional and very functional. But uh, what you were encountering in Thailand is a much more, I think, profound thing, which is just clearing the mind of everything, not filling it up with something, just clearing it. Right. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And I, and I like that you noted that whilst understand or whilst acknowledging the importance of flow, right. Because I think of like input and output kind of, um, you know, sometimes, you know, we're, you know, you're obsessed with something, learning something, whatever you're filling yourself. And then with the mindfulness kind of releasing, um, and I see the value in both, but yeah, letting, letting that mind go, um, or the thoughts go. I'm, I'm a very obsessive person. I, 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 it can very much work against me and very much work. Same here, Tracy. Same here. I'm like, so, so obsessive. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Good. <laughs> oh my gosh. I kind of like, and it absolutely can be very toxic. It can be very positive. It just... It just depends. Um, it just depends what you're obsessing about, right? Mm-hmm. Like if you're playing, if you're if you're like having a conversation with your partner, um, if you're obsessing on them and you're giving them your full attention, and you're not like like fucking glancing at your phone or glancing at like the TV or thinking about something else, like if you're giving them your full attention, that is exactly what you should fucking be doing (laughs) at that moment. And that's like the best thing ever. Right. So, uh, but if you're obsessing over something, uh, something stupid, like you're obsessing on Twitter about like something you're angry about and you're just like, your consciousness is always going back to that. um, That's going to, that's going to sort of, it's going to make you really unhappy, but it's also going to like undermine all sorts of important things that are happening around you. Like you're going to burn the fucking sauce you're making. You're going to ignore the people you're talking to. You're going to, you know, not take care of your body. You're, you're gonna, you know what I mean? Like you're, it's so, yeah, I mean, I, I see it as a kind of a superpower, <laughs> which could be used for evil or good, <laughs> but, uh, but no, I, I totally have like you, I have that, uh, that capacity. My, my wife always jokes. She says, uh, she says that I have like attention surplus disorder, <laughs> so, other known as narrow-mindedness. So, like, I can, if I if I get like into a thing, like whether it be like a book I'm reading or person I'm talking to, or the like, literally everything else is like gone. And and that can be that can be a great thing if you you know that, that's what I mean, right? That can be a great thing in certain contexts, but in other contexts, it can make you a profoundly flaky, irresponsible person who doesn't, you know, remember your commitments. So it's, it's not like absolutely good or bad. It's just what you focus on. 
It's, yeah, it's really interesting because, you know, I threw out this ADD thing and some people, you know, they, like I said, they think it's fake and I don't think it's good to pathologize everything by any stretch of the imagination. But one thing people, one of the symptoms is hyper-focus or monomania. So it's not that somebody with that can't focus. It's that they, if it's something that's stimulating, it's um, to a very great degree to the point where anything you know they could like set the house on fire which i've done before believe it or not like in a state of mania um that kind of thing um and it's like you said it can be a force for good i mean when i think of somebody like like edison or or who you know inventors scientists you know you gotta kind of go down the rabbit hole um i remember reading this story like 20 years ago about the guy who invented linux um, uh, let's see, he, he was so like focused on his programming that he would just like eat dry spaghetti, like out of a box, like, and he like drove off with his kids still in the house. You know, he didn't mean to be like that. It's just, his mind was so on, you know, creating this, I think it's an operating system or a language, I don't even open source. Um, so, you know, it's, it's just so fascinating. You know, I wish I had the the power to sort of steer it intentionally like where I want it to go and that seems to be something I don't quite have enough power over um maybe that's something I can think about for 2021 <laughs> like let's intentionally I, <laughs> I don't know if it's I don't know if it's like um I don't know I, I I don't know if it's possible to um what you're saying is like a super super crazy important question and um I don't, I personally, okay, maybe this is a thing and I'm just not aware of it yet, but um, I don't think it's possible to direct it like a laser beam the way that, the way that you're saying. I think basically what you have to do is if you have um, one sort of focal point, you know, whether it be kind of obsessing over you know, like a bad relationship you have with your mom or your dad or like some ex or, or you know, whatever. It can be anything. Uh, but um, it, I think the way that you replace a dysfunctional obsession is not by kind of, I guess, you know, the perfect sort of Buddhist slash stoic, you know, solution would be to say, well, we're just going to cure you of your obsessiveness. <laughs> Right. Um, I suppose I suppose that would be the perfect solution, um, but I think for the vast majority of people, myself included, that's just like not a realistic solution. Mm-hmm. It's uh, it's like, uh, and also I don't even know if it's necessarily the best solution, you know, because like it's like you know, Nietzsche says, uh, "Be careful when you cast out your demons, lest you cast out the best thing in you." So you know, maybe maybe in like curing yourself uh, of something that you thought was a problem you might actually like, like get rid of the thing that makes you most interesting. Like the people who like you like that shit, although it's annoying sometimes, like you might actually like be getting rid of like things that are really central to your virtues as well as your vices. Right. So I I think the best solution, or at least for me and for the people that I've known is you don't uh, replace a dysfunctional obsession with a better focus you just replace it with a better focus of obsession you you replace it with a functional healthy good 
obsession. So you, you put all of that focus that you had on something that is either pointless and stupid or, you know, actually bad. <laughs> um, and you just focus it on something that is good, right? There's nothing wrong with paying really, really careful attention to what your children or your students or your wife is saying to you. <laughs> That's not a bad obsession. That's like being like really a good listener. So, you know what I mean? Like it's not as if you have to get rid of this laser focus. Uh, just maybe like find new things, you know, find the things that give you joy and that uh, just set your mind on fire and fill you with awe and, and find the things that are like, that do that without fucking up your life. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> remembering to eat. Yeah. Cause like I'll get so, so obsessed with something. I'll, I'll literally forget to eat and that's, that's not good. I think that's such a great point. Um, Cause I still, I could definitely obsess about relationships um, and they can drive me crazy. And um, I even was dealing with it last night. It's so funny. So like if I'm in that kind of, Oh my of God, I'm so sorry. Oh, that's okay. You know, I actually talked to him about it. So it's fine. Like I'm really good friends with my ex. I, was, I should just call him like one of my best friends. Um, but we have to like set boundaries with where at, we're at in our relationship. And I didn't hear from him for 24 hours. And it's just so not like him. And you're going to love this. Um, I, I was like, well, he's with a girl, which is totally fine. It's just, okay, so I'm not as important as that. Like, my mind was all over the place. And, and it took me a lot of work to not, like, lash out in anger because there was no need to be angry. You know what? It turned out that he left his phone in his car and was on a video game vendor for, like, a day and a <laughs> some new video game. He's a very, very brilliant, brilliant, brilliant person. It's funny. And he's a huge gamer. Um, but at any rate, that's, that's, you know, we're working on that together and I've got, you know, I'm sorting through my stuff, but I woke up like tripping on it. And I was like, you know what, Tracy, why don't you just start reading about politics? It's not necessarily constructive, but you will get so sucked into that. You forget all about this and it's true. And so um, I can get too narrow, like just too locked into the politics and the anger and get addicted to the anger. And so like I was talking about, astrology tarot I don't even know if I believe those things are like true but I get I geek out on them and then I also can geek out on cryptocurrency it's this huge rabbit hole and so um I'm with you like like just go to that you know go to these other things stars like just learning about the constellations is a whole rabbit hole you know I can get sucked down um great it's great to hear that you know and have you know have somebody relate or like you're saying like get obsessed with somebody and what they're saying and where they're coming from and really important yeah i think i think sort of um in terms of astrology and tarot and stuff like that i view it very much the way i view um aa or or you know religion or or evolutionary psychology or a lot of these things, I think it's basically it prov it's narratives mm -hmm. that that sort of get you to think about the relationship between character and destiny and between you know freedom and determinism mm -hmm. and they get it gets you to think about that stuff and so you know anything that can within reason um, anything that can get you to think about those relationships 
I think um, can be can be useful. And I, I've seen I've seen uh, it, it's funny because like because I, I basically think astrology is is bullshit. But <laughs> the thing is, is like I I can't help but notice that there's a lot of like really brilliant people in, in history, like you know Machiavelli or Newton or something like that, where thinking about astrology was a way for them to come to actually a very wise position like of humility in the face of you know the fact that like we get dealt different hands and depending upon like you know it doesn't matter how you explain it if you want to explain it with regard to some like oh you know this is because our evolutionary like ancestors had to do this shit with a fucking spear. And so that's why we do this or whatever your explanation is, or it's because the stars were aligned, the planets were aligned and that's why you do this shit. Or if you say, Oh, it's because of Jesus. wanted." (laughs) I mean, whatever narrative you have that kind of allows you to think about the, the relationship between character and destiny and really these other things, right. Um, It's possible to come to a position of wisdom from a bunch of these different narratives. I've talked to people who are like super religious and they're in a religious tradition that, you know, that I'm not a part of and that, um, you know, in a a kind of obvious, like factual way seems like bullshit to me, but I can't help but notice that this narrative has provided a scaffolding for them to be you know, pretty fucking wise, right? And like they have like some pretty good ideas of that stuff. So to sort of say the scaffolding is bullshit, well, clearly it it helped them. <laughs> you know? So it's uh I don't know. I, I think there's like so yeah, in terms of like tarot and astrology, it's it's not it's not my bag. I mean I happen to I'm a part of a particular religious tradition. Um but but I understand that like the, the religious, you know, Christianity, I understand that Christianity from, you know, from an objective perspective is just as much bullshit as tarot and astrology. <laughs> and yet I've met people, you know, from, from Buddhism, from Islam, from Christianity, from atheism, from evolutionary psychology, from astrology, who have used those funny little stories to come to some really smart insights i don't i don't know how to make sense of that <laughs> i mean maybe you do i don't i don't know how to make sense of that um well you know it's really funny because i've been interested in astrology for for a while um but tara was new and young was really into astrology and very much into tarot and so I love, I haven't even read that much. I mean, I'm like, I'm kind of like, I get a little bit of here, here, there on the internet or whatnot, but I do know he, he's kind of the guy who pioneered this idea of shadow work, integrating the dark side of your personality with your light side and integrating different, you know, with tarot, what he, I think liked about it was you're working with archetypes and those archetypes, you know, you think about um, the high priestess, the very wise spiritual woman, or you think about the fool who's naive, but also like very adventurous or, you know, um, uh, let's see, I'm trying to think of something that's sort of 
um, the emperor who's, you know, kind of dogmatic, but also very strong. Like, like we all have these pieces, um, these, these different archetypes in our personalities. And so learning how to work with them and integrate them and manipulate them even, I think is, is really a great thing to learn how to do. I think he was into kind of the psycho spiritual and, and the metaphysical for sure. But um, I see I can't get on board with like this stuff is predictive. I, I don't feel comfortable. I would never feel comfortable telling somebody, oh, this shows that you're going to do this, even with astrology. Like it makes me very uncomfortable because I don't like the idea of like negativity. Maybe it predicts something, but like when I look at astrology in a chart and a birth chart, I see it as like you're saying, kind of there, there's something called esoteric astrology where you're looking at it as a story and as a development process this this you're like this these are the influences and this is your path to growth and that in and of itself could all be bullshit but i found that it doesn't hurt me um i have found i remember i remember you like you said i can't remember it was a couple years ago we were messaging back and forth about something and you were dating this guy who was into jordan peterson and uh, and we were messaging back and forth about this and like and I think I think uh, you said or I said I can't remember which one of us uh, said this in our conversation, but I think it was you actually. You said, you know, well, I, you know, as as annoying as I find and as difficult as I find it to like get into, you know, why he likes this guy, I will say that it's really cool that Jordan Peterson, you know, if I have to say one nice thing about him, like you know at least he's got a whole generation of people reading Jung again and getting interested in archetypes and all that stuff. Cause he's a Jungian psycho- psychiatrist, which is like, you know, it's like a dying breed. <laughs> They're very rare. Right. And he, uh, anyway, I thought, I thought that was so interesting. And so I, I went and like actually uh, asked a number of, um, psychiatrists and psychologists that I know, and they're like, "Yeah, no, it's totally true." <laughs> He's gotten all these people like, you know, thinking about like Jung again. But you know, it's funny because I remember having this uh, reading group discussion with a bunch of people, and you know, one of the people there was not only a, a clinical psychologist but also like a really hardcore Jordan Peterson fan, and um, and and she said. Um, she, which is funny all by itself, but uh, <laughs> anyway, she she said um, she said she said you know uh, astrology is total bullshit, um, and she listed all these other things. Tarot's bullshit because if you want to really understand the at a basic level how the human psyche works, you need to look to the uh, the Big Five personality test in psychology. Because that that really explains if you want to understand the relationship between character and destiny, the relationship between freedom and determinism, you need to look to the big five personality, uh, you know, and to, you know, with total confidence telling all of us this. Well, recently, uh, he's listening to us right now. Um, our my sound producer, Eric Sugai, who you met earlier on before we went live. Uh, he recommended this book to me by this Harvard professor called uh, The Weirdest People in the World. 
Mm. And it is so completely, it's amazing. We're going to, we're trying to get him on the podcast like for, for next month. But anyway, he uh, basically, okay, I'll give you the, the short, the short version is that this guy basically proves that the big five thing in psychology mm-hmm. is bullshit. Okay. That basically, it doesn't describe human nature as such. It describes human nature as it expresses itself uh, within like very Western industrialized, highly educated. Uh, so almost all of like psychology's models of what human psychology is all about are based on studies done on um, Western college students. And as it turns out, Western college students are not uh, representative of humans as such. So if you go to like monks in Thailand or people in like a ghetto in Baltimore or people in Fiji or hunter gatherers in the Kalahari or in the middle of the Amazon, they don't conform to the big five at all. So anyway, this is a long way of saying, I basically think any model, um, almost any model that we have is probably bullshit. <laughs> so it's, it's sort of what you do with it, right? Like, do you find, do you find a path to wisdom from this? Well, if you do fucking awesome, you know, as you were like, uh, but I, I don't, I think it's really hard for us to find any kind of solid ground. I think that's really interesting. And it's so funny because I wonder, I was like, are we going to be able to talk about Jordan Peterson? So I think that's great. <laughs> Came up organically. And yes, my, my ex who I was just talking about earlier is the Jordan Peterson fan. Um, so it's I really- knew he was. I just didn't want to say anything. <laughs> yeah. I put that together crazy. That's so funny. But it's, <laughs> I'm glad you said that about the big five, because I've thought about it a lot. I've taken the tests and, you know, I've scored really high in neuroticism. And I was like, oh, gosh, I'm this is how I am. And it's baked in and there's nothing I can do about it. And I remember being kind of dejected. And then like two years later, I took the same test and I was much lower in it. And um yeah, it's like, first of all, it's so, it's just five traits. And second, secondly, it's a snapshot of where you were at in that moment or that, that second of your life or that year of your life. And I, I, I like what you're saying about deterministic and determinism because I, I think it's just, you know, it's full circle back to how we started this conversation. It's just so important to kind of get a sense of your cognition, what you're telling yourself about yourself, how you perceive yourself, because so many of these subconscious thoughts can be very, very limiting to us. Um, and, you know, recognizing that, I mean, if I think that I'm an introvert, then, you know, that could lead me to feel more awkward in social situations. You know, some years I'm more of an introvert, some months I'm more of an extrovert. I mean, it's interesting, right? Because we're all fluid people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, and it, we're fluid during we're fluid during the day. We're fluid during the life course, uh, during the month, during the year. So, yeah, it, it's very, uh, you know. And one of the things that's interesting is if it, even if you want to translate it into the language of like hormones and neuroscience and you know modern science, like people generally um, during the life course have like different 
levels of hormones, which affect your psychology quite a bit. So um, when you're, when you're, let's say um, a teenager, you have like your hormones are raging and stuff like that. And that affects your psychology in various interesting ways. Right. But then gradually as you get older, um, certain hormones change. And so uh, older, older men, for instance, from middle age onward tend to have like, you know, lower testosterone, but higher estrogen and uh, women in terms of their, their kind of balance between estrogen, testosterone, and progesterone tend to, um, as their estrogen goes down um, in kind of middle age, and then obviously after menopause, their testosterone ends up being more of a, a kind of a predictive, decisive factor. So the, the whole idea of the kind of the, the wise uh, older woman who's like very decisive and maybe a little bossy and pushy and very kind of like, you know, uh, that actually, that, that story, which you got from Tarot, mm-hmm. actually totally fits with like what we know about how hormones work, that, <laughs> that actually men get uh, much more uh, sort of yin, you know, less yang, more yin, and that women get more yang and less yin as they get older, right? So that, that affects their so old, the kind of gentle old man and the wise, old, bossy, pushy woman who knows what, what the fuck is up and like tells you. Like, I mean, all these stories that we tell ourselves about ourselves um they seem to contain some grain of truth right it's just i I guess a lot of it has to do with like are you going to um are you going to remain open to new information and open to the possibility that everything you think you know is bullshit right that's critical in my opinion because if you if you aren't constantly in that state I always say I'm a fool, right? If I, if I'm not open to what, if it's political, if it's, I don't know, you know, philosophical, whatever it is, if we're talking about, you know, uh, addiction, I better be open. Um, mm-hmm. And open to data for sure. I think. Well, I think the, the beautiful thing about having access to awe and having access to, to that kind of joy is that when you're in that state, um, you're, t- I mean, you, you've experienced this. You totally know what I'm talking about. When you're in that state, you're totally okay with being wrong. Like mm-hmm. you're okay with like maybe totally reinventing your life and rethinking what you think about your dad <laughs> or whatever, or what you think about like this relationship you had in your late twenties. Like when you're in that state, you're so open because you're not super, you're, you're not really kind of invested in your, um, in your ego and in like your opinions about shit, you know, was, which is like, which is a really healthy place to be. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. The dissolution of the ego for sure. And definitely I, I actually watched a video of Michael Pollan speaking at Google about this, these psychedelic experiences and he was describing it. I remember, and I, I definitely think that's something to experience, you know, it's like we exercise, you know, we take a vacation, right? Like intermittently experiencing the dissolution of your ego is a really healthy thing. <laughs> mm-hmm. Experience it, you know? Yeah. 
Well, it's a, no, it absolutely is. And I, I don't think you need to, to do hallucinogenics to get that. I mean, one of the things is I, I, um, for years now, I've been giving tours of, of my city, Montreal, like walking tours of the city. And what always amazes me, never ceases to amaze me, is that when you have tourists coming to, you know, a city that I was born in and that I've lived most of my life in, mm-hmm. like, People who come to a place with fresh eyes, they will so often see things that I've like missed, even though I've like walked by something like thousands and thousands of times, they'll see something new because they come to it with fresh eyes. Right. So I think a lot of the, the joy that you get from, you know, leaving this kind of, you know, toxic life that you have in LA and going to Thailand or, Armenia or something like that. I think a lot of the joy that you get from that experience of travel and of change, which is what Michael Pollan is talking about. You, you take a drug and you, you get the change that you, that other people have to take a plane for, right? So I think a lot of the joy is that you're just seeing something with fresh eyes, mm. right? You're just, you're just like seeing something. So you, know, you probably saw, this would be my prediction. My guess is that you saw all sorts of beauty in Thailand and Armenia that Thai people and Armenian people don't see. Like you, you, or, or the vast majority of them don't see because you were fresh. You know, you were like a two year old looking at snow. You're in those things and you're seeing something new, right? And it's, uh, you're seeing it fresh. And that's like such an incredible experience. But, it's- uh, it sure is. And I, and I really think that's one of the things I love so much about traveling. Um, Cause I will just pour money into that. And I really try to be frugal. I don't even buy, I don't care about clothes. I don't care about things, but I will just spend. And, you know, I think it's worth it. I mean, because you're alive, right? Like you're talking about, you're noticing things, you're alive. It's such a positive state um, talking about positive psychology. Like it really is. So, and I think you can really do that in your own backyard, you know, like, you know, mindfully, maybe taking a walk down a different street, you know, um, I think we can, we can cultivate that in our, in our daily life, even during COVID. I think we can. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> I hope we can. Well, I, I, I really, really like want to get you on the podcast again, because we, we need to do, we haven't even gone, you know, we haven't even covered 25% of what I want to cover with you, but Anyway, this was absolutely amazing. I thank you so much for coming on the podcast. And this was, uh, this was like great fun. <laughs> this was great fun. And, John- and um, I, I hope, uh, can, you, can you sort of just, before we go, can you tell our listeners, um, you know, sort of what your, how they can follow you on social media, what your website is, what your the novel you're working on is, you know, just sort of, do, do your pitch. <laughs> yeah, so I'm a life. I'm so professionally. I'm a lifestyle editor for for Shondaland.com. That is the digital publication of Shonda Rhimes. If you're familiar with her, she created Grey's Anatomy, and Bridgerton is now oh. success. Yeah, on Netflix. That's a show from our company. Oh my god, my my wife watched that. That was like basically like legal Pornhub. That was like soft porn. That was so unbelievably like she had to like mute it because they were like all this hot fucking all the time and our sons are around and she was embarrassed. So 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I hear you. <laughs> no, you're right. Totally. I was surprised about that. Um, so I do that. And then you can follow me on Twitter. It's at Tracy A. Shabala. And I'm also on Facebook. One of the few Tracy Shabalas out there. Um, I was working on a novel and a memoir. And now it's, it's, those things are just kind of on pause as I go down this crypto bubble. But like, I'll get back to it. I'm sure. So, uh, so what is the crypto bubble? I just find blockchain technology so exciting about decentralization and, you know, getting away from these power structures, decentralized finance. There's so many applications that are, um, you know, very, very um, promising in terms of solving real world problems. I think a lot of people think it's kind of a hype thing. As far as crypto, there's just so much to learn about crypto. It's just fascinating. And it's in a huge bull rally um, as well. So, you know, looking at where Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies uh, go and when, you know, we're looking at a potential dystopian future um, (laughs) or the collapse of the US dollar. I don't actually think that's going to happen. But there's just a lot of techie stuff to learn. So I love learning about it. Awesome. Well, I, I will definitely uh, have to have to have you on um, again to see where this goes. I'm not surprised that you're shelving the novel idea because you've changed so much in the last 10 years. I get, just I can tell through your writing because I read everything that you write. And like you've changed so much that I'm sure the person that, that started that project doesn't exist anymore. So it's going to have to be a new project. Right. Right. So it's, uh, you know, it's like the whole Bob Dylan line, right? Like I was so much older then I'm younger than that now. Right. So you're like a new thing now. So anyway, thank you so much. This has been an absolute joy and I can't wait to uh, hear all the feedback that our listeners have from this particular episode. And this is, uh, this is great. Thank Thank you you so much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. All right. Talk to you (laughs) you later. Bye. Bye.